Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anand Upadhyay, and thanks for joining us. We're honored to present our conversation with Richard Suskind, one of the world's leading intellectuals on technology and the law and the future of work. Dr. Suskind is also the author of some of the best-known books involving the modernization of law and lawyers, including The Future of Law, Tomorrow's Lawyers, and his most recent book, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. In our conversation, Richard considers the future of our court system, incentives for law firms and the big four accounting firms to modernize, and his prediction that tomorrow's core legal jobs will revolve around technology and the creation of systems. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Richard, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's an honor to have you here. It's a great pleasure to join you. So, Richard, I, I always uh, start out by asking my guests to introduce themselves. Uh, you've got a, a an impressive career as a professor, as a thinker, as an author, as you know, a, a advisor and strategist. I'd love for you to kind of give us the the arc of that that uh, impressive career. Thank you. The story began in 1981 when I was a law student in Scotland in Glasgow University, and I became interested in the way in which technology might improve legal services. If you can imagine, the PC had just been invented by IBM, and many people were wondering how technology might affect the work of lawyers and the courts. And this, as a young student, fascinated me. I got interested. This took me to the world of AI, which in turn took me to Oxford, and I did a PhD from 83 to 86 in artificial intelligence and law in Oxford. I then went on to develop, which I understand to be the world's first commercial use or, or application of AI in the law, a working system I co-developed with a, a domain expert in a particularly complex area of law. And after that, a mixed career uh, within one of the big accounting firms and then a major law firm. But for the last 20 odd years, I've essentially been an independent. And what I've done in this capacity is write, I speak, I advise governments, I advise major professional firms, and the major focus is on how it is that technology is changing professional service and changing public service as well. I generally take an optimistic view. I think we can harness technology for public good. Well, I appreciate that background, Richard. Now, I want to move on uh, to the book that you recently published, Online Courts in the Future of Justice. But uh, I'm at Case Techs. We're a legal technology company. And I have to ask about that early AI. And I've read a bit about it. I, I believe it was an expert systems AI in the field of latent damages. Is that correct? And can you talk about roughly what it was and what you were trying to achieve with the earliest kind of legal technology AI? Yes, in the 80s, what we were doing, as everyone in the world of expert systems and AI was doing, was trying to model human decision-making processes. So I sat down with a man called Philip Capper, who was the former chair of the law school at Oxford University, the leading expert in this new piece of legislation called the Latent Damage Act 1986. And this particular area of law concerned limitation. Basically, it related to the date after which an action could no longer be raised in the courts because too much time had elapsed. And this turned out to be a really complicated question of law after this new piece of legislation came in. And we had the idea that we could essentially model his 
reasoning processes. And so consistent with the enabling technologies that were available, this is what you did in AI in the 80s, we developed a huge decision tree, a huge flowchart, which essentially represented, reflected the reasoning patterns he would articulate when trying to explain how he came to a particular conclusion. So the idea of AI in the 80s was you find an expert, you mine the jewels from their heads, you model or represent their expertise in a computer system and essentially make it available to others to follow through. And this involved what was a technique known as rule-based expert systems. Some people use logic programming, but there was a natural match, most of us felt, with the law because so much of the law was rule-based. And in the end, the system we developed had over 2 million paths through it, and it could solve problems in a matter of minutes where it would probably take lawyers many hours to solve. And so we felt in the late 80s that we'd actually shown beyond any reasonable doubt, as criminal lawyers would say, that this technology, AI technology, we now see it as the first wave of AI, could actually be used to, to model and solve problems in complicated areas of law, particularly well suited to regulation and to legislation. But we also showed that you could structure and organize case law within these systems as well. And that was the late 80s. The thing to note, and it's in great contrast to the second wave of AI, was that you had to explicitly represent structure, essentially code or program human knowledge in the system. Whereas what we now do in the second wave, the machine learning wave of AI, essentially what we do is create vast or gather vast bodies of data. And from that data, clever algorithms can actually derive useful knowledge or at least can help us identify patterns, correlations, can help us make predictions and so forth. So the first generation of AI, we programmed the computers. The second generation of AI, these machines are learning from large bodies of data. Well, Richard, like many of your responses, I think uh, we could do a whole podcast just on that. But but I want, and there's so many things that I, I could ask about there. But I want to move on, um, and I think that could actually be a good segue to move on to the recent book that you published, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. I want to ask you just kind of the the high level of what this book book represents. You know, if you had to impart to our listeners in a, a few sentences your central thesis of this book or what you want our listeners to take away, what would it be? I would start with the problem. And the problem is the global problem of inaccess to justice. Only 46% of people on our planet have access to legal services and court services. In some countries, there's massive backlogs in the court system. In Brazil, for example, was a backlog of 100 million cases. But even in systems such as our own that we take great pride in, the reality is, particularly for low-value disputes, to pursue an action costs a lot, takes a long time, it's very combative, the process is unintelligible to everyone other than lawyers, and somehow it seems to me just out of step in the digital society. So that's the backdrop to the book. The question I ask is, is court serve a, a service or a place? Do we really need physically to congregate together to sort out our differences? Or in the digital world, might, might we be able to sort out our differences in a new way? And I suggest that these online courts are going to come in two generations. The first generation involves online judging. That's still human judges making decisions, but not 
at oral hearings, not in physical courtrooms, but on the basis of arguments and evidence submitted to them electronically. The second aspect of this first generation is what I call the extended court. We need, it seems to me, when legal services are by and large inaccessible, I think it's an appropriate function for our courts to help parties understand their legal problems, to be able to classify and categorize them, understand the options available to them, and to give them tools to help them organize and present their evidence and arguments, and even perhaps tools to help them resolve their differences without going before a judge. That's the first generation. And the second generation, in summary, is when we start using AI techniques actually to undertake some of the decision making. That's a more distant prospect, but it's a one that uh, really interests, I think, many people in the legal and technological worlds. It seems that the technology is there. The need uh, is there. I mean, you mentioned that 46 percent uh, statistic. There's a lot of technology nowadays being directed towards access to justice. A lot of the pieces are there, but it seems like this big revolution in the courts just is not yet underway. Now, I, I you know, I'm tempted to be cynical here, right? I mean, there, there's uh, a quote from from uh, your book, Tomorrow's Lawyers, and it's the following: Institutions will try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. And I'm wondering, you know, is if a lot of the pieces are there, if maybe the will from the consumer is there, yet these systems aren't being revolutionized or rapidly changed, is this because a lot of the entrenched interests simply just don't want them to change because there's more money in this kind of uh, maybe fiction that, that all of the law is this bespoke enterprise? I should say, first of all, that that quotation, I wish it was mine, but it wasn't. It was one from Clay Shirky. Your, your question is an interesting one. It applies well beyond online courts. Why is it that we don't adopt technologies that are demonstrably superior to many of our current ways of working? I have no doubt, having looked across the world at online courts, that they would bring great improvements today. You also know, perhaps, that I wrote a book with my son, Daniel, called The Future of the Professions, where we looked at the impact of technology across many professions, including medicine, audit, tax, architecture, journalism, consultancy, and even the clergy. And I think it's true to say that other than the clergy, the legal profession is embracing technology most slowly. <laughs> and so we're a conservative old bunch. One can present all sorts of reasons and explanations. There's obviously a bit of self-interest involved. There's some concern about technology. Many, when they hear about online courts, worry about the level of service and about access to justice. But it is true, even in professions like the medical profession, that it does take about a generation almost for a technology that's been proven and discussed in the journals to become mainstream. And so I've always been, in all my writings, I've always been relatively patient. It, it seems to me that we have these great institutions, the professions, and in our book, we we question whether or not they are entirely appropriate for the digital society. We have these great institutions, and it's, it seemed to me unrealistic to expect them to change overnight. And so what I've always done, and uh, it started, I suppose, in the mid-90s, although it was my fourth book, when I wrote the book, The Future of Law, what I was saying there was that we will see the legal profession being changed by technology. Uh, information technology, as we called it at that stage, and many people were cynical. I always tell the tale, but I'll tell it again. But when I suggested in that book and in public lectures at the time 
that the dominant way that lawyers and clients might communicate in the future would be by email. Officials at the Law Society of England and Wales said I shouldn't be allowed to speak in public and that I was bringing the legal profession into disrepute. It's interesting that that same Law Society, 22, 23 years, 24 years on, is now one of the greatest supporters of technology within the legal world. It takes a generation. At that same stage, I was saying that the first port of call for anyone engaged in legal research would in due course become the web. And people said to me, judges and lawyers joined forces in condemning me, saying I didn't understand the practical, indeed the cultural significance of the law library. But again, a generation on, we see the web as absolutely the first port of call. So we shouldn't be expecting, it seems to me, when there's working practices so firmly entrenched that there'll be immediate change. If you ask me the question about change in relation to the big law firms, I like to remind people that it's hard to convince a room full of millionaires that they've got their business model wrong. <laughs> the reality is these major firms are progressing very nicely and very profitably on the old business model. So there's no obvious commercial incentive to change. As regards online courts, though, I think the position is rather different. And it's true to say, actually, that the whole field of online courts has only really been discussed over the last five or six years. The field of online dispute resolution is rather older than that. I think we can date that to the early 90s, uh, when people started saying, I wonder if we could resolve disputes online. But the first generation of online dispute resolution was in many people's minds a form, forgive me for this, a form of ADR, of alternative dispute resolution. People were saying, rather than going to the court system, why don't you use those alternative methods like mediation or conciliation or early neutral evaluation? And by and large, I think there, there's been disappointment in the legal marketplace about the success of ADR uh, for all sorts of different reasons that we could discuss if you wish. My point, though, was it was only about 2014, 2015, uh, partly work I was doing for the government and the judiciary in the UK, partly work that was being pioneered in Canada, where a bunch of us started saying online dispute resolution needn't simply be a private sector alternative to the court system. Surely it should be part of the court system any modern justice system worth its salt in which we want a new generation to have confidence should surely embrace this use of technology rather than saying this is somehow something that's beyond the scope of the courts. And so it's really quite difficult to find before 2014 any real references to the idea of what I mentioned earlier, either online judging or the extended court. All of this is to say that it's early days. And I believe a transformation in a court system is a 10-year project at least. And if you look at what's happening in the UK, we have a one billion pound reform program at the heart of which is the introduction of all manner of online judging and extended court facilities. So you speak to me, I think, at the early stages of a revolution. I think we'll move from conventional court to online courts more quickly than we moved from lawyers not using email to lawyers being relatively comfortable with technology today. I also think, and it's quite interesting in that book I've written, most of my books are received rather badly within the legal world because people think I'm wanting to get rid of lawyers. It's never been my intention at all. I'm far more interested in clients than lawyers. I do think, though, that. Uh, um, the law is no more there to provide a living for 
lawyers that ill health is there to provide a living for doctors. It's not the purpose of law to keep lawyers or courts or judges in business. And so I am always looking for better ways to provide access to justice. But in the past, a lot of my work has been about law firms and people have found this threatening. There's been, I think, a far warmer reception to this new book because it's about access to justice. And I think most lawyers and, and law firms acknowledge that we do have a, a global problem there and it won't simply do to throw more money at conventional lawyers. We need new techniques and new approaches. So my hope is as we move into the 20s, we'll see quite rapid uptake. And one of my own personal missions is to see if we can do this globally and not just in advanced legal systems. You know, there's there's certain countries like Brazil, I think like India, um, maybe a few others that have an extremely uh, large interest in ODR, in in getting the, the complaints and the suits of its citizenry uh, listened to. In the U.S., it seems like things are moving, you know, relatively slow, at least on the the public sector end of things. Do you view the private sector as as um, a, a segment that could be kind of the vanguard for ODR, high tech ADR? Um, you know, as as you know, as I, I know you've lectured, there's a lot of um, you know arbitration and out of court uh, you know resolution already happening. For example, internally on certain platforms, you know, Airbnb is one of them. You know, Lyft and Uber and a number of others are saying, you know, we're going to kind of create our own um, you know dispute resolution center because the courts are, are too bogged down. Do you view uh, the private sector as kind of leading the charge here? And maybe if what they do uh, actually works, the US court system, uh, certainly uh, maybe starting at the small claims level, will say, okay, we're now gonna borrow the, the ideas uh, that have worked for maybe tech companies and um, you know, other large institutions that have a lot of disputes to, to resolve. I think it's a very likely course, and eBay, of course, was one of the first pioneers of online dispute resolution. I think it's likely, but not necessarily desirable. It's likely because there's a great commercial opportunity here, because many businesses who have difficulties, if you take, say, small and medium-sized businesses who have difficulties, conflicts, disagreements, they're just wanting to get on with their business. And the idea of a swift, inexpensive, intelligible, fairly authoritative decision that can allow them to proceed with their daily business is deeply attractive. And so the great commercial opportunity, and it'll be fascinating to see who jumps in this, is to provide the standard platform beyond the platforms you mentioned that are embedded within a lot of the e-providers already, to provide a standard platform for low-level dispute resolution across business. For consumers, equally, there's a great commercial opportunity to provide such a facility to help consumers, either who are in disputes perhaps with other with businesses or other consumers or with governments and so forth. Why I say though that it might not be desirable is that I do worry that the court system will lose its credibility, will lose its plausibility if the standard way of resolving disputes is no longer in the shadow of the courts. It seems to me the rule of law, this idea that we have these binding rules in the greatest of terms that are apply, applicable to everyone and must be evenly administered, and one can define rule of law at length here, but the rule of law depends on there being 
uh, highly functioning, independent, reliable judiciary, if the judiciary is always sidestepped, if it's easier and people regard it for perhaps to be superior to resort to a non-state-based resolution of all their disputes, it seems to me that can diminish the authority, the perceived bindingness, the perceived significance, not just of the courts, but of the legal system itself. And that's why I'm pushing hard, because I think it's important for the rule of law that courts around the world embrace these technologies to retain their credibility in the 21st century. Nonetheless, I'm not for a second saying we shouldn't permit private sector alternatives. And I think if we reconvened in just two years, you'll see some pretty plausible and impressive attempts in this area. And it's certainly interesting in relation to my book, when I think of the, my new book, when I think of the contacts that have been made with me, as many of them are about private sector ODR possibilities as the development of online courts. What glimmers of hope do you see among courts from around the world? I mean, what are some of the most high-tech courts that you've seen, and what are they doing that could be uh, kind of exemplars for other courts across across the country, across the world, that are still kind of embedded in that old paper-based way of doing things and, and kind of the slow slog of, of litigation work? I have to take a long run-up in answering that question because you mentioned high-tech courts, but it seems to me that's only a very small part of the battle. In the book, I distinguish, as I always have done, between automation and transformation. Automation is essentially the use of technology, this is my terminology, the use of technology to systematize, to computerize, streamline, optimize, turbocharge our traditional ways of working. Now, if you look at the last 40 years of legal technology and court technology, technology used by lawyers and litigators and judges and courtrooms and so forth. It's been all about automation, grafting new technology onto old processes, somehow to make the system a little more manageable, a little more streamlined, quicker and so forth. Now, there's a lot to be said for automation and no doubt it does introduce some efficiencies, but this is a million miles from transformation which is my preoccupation. And by transformation, I mean the use of technology to allow us to resolve disputes in ways that previously weren't possible. That's the really exciting role of technology. And it's not just a point that I would make of courts, it's a point I would make right across the legal sector. Because law firms, let's be clear, law firms, the technologies they embrace are by and large automation too. They're not fundamentally changing the business model, they're streamlining the old model using that technology, perhaps communicating and collaborating in different ways. But my fascination is in transformation. And so when we talk about online dispute resolution, and I mentioned the early 90s, the reality is this simply was not possible before the advent of the web in the early 90s. This was the new platform that would allow this kind of resolution to take place. And so, of course, I can point you to many justice systems, legal systems, court systems around the world that have embraced technology generally, and we might call them high-tech courts. There might be use in the courtroom of electronic display of evidence. There could be advanced document display technology. We've seen computer-assisted or technology-assisted review coming on in leaps and bounds. But none of this is what I'm really talking about. 
because I'm challenging the way we've resolved disputes for the last couple of hundred years in a print-based industrial society, and particularly in the common law system, in a way that's involved humans called judges, involved buildings called courts, driven by huge bodies of interrelated, convoluted complexes of rules that we call procedures. Uh, one of the senior judges in England said, when we launched our original report on online dispute resolution and online courts, uh, he said, any system that's got a 2000 page user manual has a problem. <laughs> and he was referring there to the English court system. So if you're asking me a question about point me to a high tech court, I can probably point you to 25 jurisdictions that are systematizing the old ways of working. If you're asking me to point to online courts, there are very few. I would point you to some of the work we're doing in England, and I'd point you to the work of the, the Civil Resolution Tribunal in Canada and British Columbia. They're the leading examples. There are illustrations also in China, in Singapore, in Australia. Uh, there's little bits, for example, in, in Utah, in the United States too. But let's be clear, this is early days, and it's really, I, I like to write my books when we're in the threshold of exciting new developments uh, and this is uh, so i like in some ways this book online courts and the future of justice written in 2019 it's the equivalent of my book written in 1996 which was about the future of lawyers and we're actually only going to see these changes to lawyers i believe the fundamental changes in the 20s and so don't be surprised if it takes a decade or more for online courts to come through but do we honestly think in 30 years time or actually let me take a step back uh, well the books dedicated to my little granddaughter rosa who's almost two and i start off the book by wondering what she'll think when she turns say 21 and she looks at this book with her name on it and she'll think why on earth did my grandfather devote so much time writing a book on the glaringly obvious that in a digital society, surely most of the work of courts should be done on an online basis. So I think it'll be self-evident in 20 years time. The interesting question is how I, and this is one of the things I like to do in life, how can we accelerate the progress? Let me give you a couple of examples though, because you, you, you did ask for examples. I mentioned England and British Columbia. So in England, illustrations of the extended court, in divorce actions, undefended divorces in England, it's interesting that there used to be, and still is in fact, a very large and complex document that needs to be formed, that needs to be completed in the first instance, traditionally done by lawyers. And up until recently, these documents were submitted to the court. And although they're done by lawyers, 40% of them were returned by the courts as being incomplete or errorful in some way. Instead, they've recently introduced, and this is for non-lawyers to complete the forms themselves, an online form. And it's the kind of form you can't get to page two until you've completed page one correctly. Right. The error rate, the number of returns is now less than 1%. So this is a simple example of the extended court, the facilities being given to non-lawyers and providing a higher quality of service. In British Columbia, we have the idea of their solution explorer, which is based, interestingly, on very similar technology to the ones we were discussing earlier, my latent damage system. It's a rule-based expert system, a kind of decision tree that will track users through their legal problems and offer them broad guidance on their legal position. These technologies are here and now and available to go and witness. 
in England and Wales in our tribunal system, also looking at the idea of an online continuous hearing. And that's the idea moving away a little bit from the adversarial process to the idea that the judge and the parties have a kind of uh, dialogue by email and the judge is more participative, pushing and poking a little bit, uh, nudging the parties, trying to get to the heart of the issue, him or herself. And as I say, this is a departure from the traditional adversarial process, but for relatively low value disputes where the legal issues are relatively straightforward for the tribunal judge, even if hopelessly difficult for the parties, this is seeming like a sensible step forward. And again, also, if you want to see online judging, look in Canada, look at the work of Shannon Salter and what she's been doing there and her judges making all manner of decisions on an online basis. So it's not science fiction, uh, although quoting the great science fiction writer William Gibson, we can say that the future has arrived, it's just not evenly distributed yet. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that quote. And, and you talked a lot about transformation and the need for transformation, just incremental, you know, 5% year over year kind of increases in efficiencies isn't what you're talking about. Certainly not what you're talking about in this book. Uh, you also mentioned that you're a lot more interested in the client than the lawyer. And I very much appreciate that. You know, but I want to uh, transition now to a, a discussion of the place for lawyers in all of this, right? And uh, yeah, I'm going to read you a quote from a, an interview you gave to Evolve the Law, uh, I believe about a year and a half ago. Uh, and this is making me very nervous. No, 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 no. This is, this is well, let me just read the quote. I'd love to get your, right your reaction. And it's the Where following. Um, Most people are of the mindset that if what they do can't be replaced by a system such as oral advocacy, then they're safe. While we are many years away from technology that could engage in advocacy, that line of reasoning misses the point. The whole idea of online courts is that you will have judges making decisions online on the basis of arguments and evidence submitted to them electronically. This means there will no longer be a need for traditional oral advocacy. Instead, new skills will become necessary that involve formulating and delivering arguments and evidence in a form that is most compelling online. Richard, how how should this not be distressing to those attorneys out there who have who have polished their oral advocacy skills for decades and and who now may be kind of the excluded from a system that's purely based off of, you know, formulating and delivering arguments electronically. I think the first thing to say is, of course, that most of the work in online courts is for relatively low value disputes, sure. many of which actually conducted by litigants and person pro se litigants themselves and not by lawyers. But the bigger issue, I suppose, is that if this technology is in the jargon genuinely disruptive, it may succeed in gain a foothold in low value disputes and then essentially seep through the system and gradually displace traditional lawyers uh, from various activities, including oral advocacy. This is part of a broader issue. I want to get back to the question of threats in a second, but you raise what for me is an absolutely central issue in people's thinking about the future of work generally and the future of legal work in particular. There is, as you know, a growing literature, and in fact, and I have to plug it for my son, uh, Daniel, my co-author, who's just published a book called uh, A World Without Work, where he addresses this issue at great length. But there is a, a growing literature in the question of 
the future of work, technological unemployment, will there be any work for us to do in a world of increasingly capable machines? You have read that debate, you'll have read about robots replacing workers, terribly unhelpful way of putting it. But the debate has been dominated by a particular way of thinking. And this is what economists call a task-based approach to assessing and exploring the future of labor. So typically, if you look at studies done by major consulting firms and some academics too, what they will do is they'll look at a range of jobs. They'll bake the jobs down into tasks and they'll ask of each task, is it credible or plausible that this kind of task in the future might be replaced by a machine? Where they identify and surmise that it's hard perhaps to imagine a particular task indeed being replaced by a machine, they'll say that bit of the job is safe. And so in their analysis where you see stats, for example, that only 85% of uh, the work that a, a particular profession or a particular white collar work uh, does will be available to them in the future, that gives comfort. They say, so only 15% of my job's going to replace, only 15% of the tasks. And you'll, I think, typically see that most analysis of lawyers say there's so many things that lawyers can't do, so many tasks that they can't undertake. Now, I think this is flawed, this kind of reasoning is flawed for two reasons. One, I'll skip over. The first is that it assumes wrongly that machines can only do fairly routine work. And again and again, as we see machines become more capable, we're seeing them taking on tasks that we historically would have thought required the creativity, the imagination, the judgment of human beings. We can get back to that if you want, that's in the, the whole area of AI. But the bigger and far more fundamental point is that it's not just about task substitution. Sometimes these technologies, these transformative technologies, will allow us to deliver the outcomes that our clients, our customers, our users will want in fundamentally new and different ways. And so, jumping now to the question of online courts, if we are right and say that a significant number of cases can be decided online, this will mean there is far less need for oral advocacy. And so all the analysis of the future of lawyers, which depends on, for example, the task of oral advocacy never being undertaken by machines, becomes irrelevant. I often give the example here, I was asked to speak to a large body of neurosurgeons a couple of years ago, and they asked me to be controversial. And my opening line was, patients don't want neurosurgeons patients want health. And I said, for a particular type of health problem, you today are undoubtedly the best solution. But in the future, maybe 50 years time, we'll probably look back and say, it's unbelievable we used to cut bodies open, how primitive. Because the future of healthcare, as I'm led to believe, is about non-invasive techniques. And so asking the question I said to them, what's the future of surgery or neurosurgery, is to ask the wrong question. The question you need to ask is how in the future will we be solving problems to which neurosurgeons are currently the best answer? And there is no point in saying that robotic surgery can only go so far, there'll always be room for human neurosurgeons if the whole shebang has been replaced by non-invasive techniques. Similarly, there's no point in saying a robot can't stand up in a courtroom and therefore oral advocates are safe 
if the court process is largely displaced by online courts. Now, that was a little bit of a diversion, a hopefully a helpful one, on the future of work. Let's get back to this issue of whether or not it's a threat. And it's really interesting how people respond, because there's almost polar responses to my work on the future of lawyers and law firms and advocates and so forth. On the one hand, there are those who say, as you've hinted in your question, this is a dreadful threat. This is my livelihood. I've always worked in this way. If oral advocacy is displaced, there's no work for me to do. But on the other hand, there are many lawyers who approach me and say, this is exciting. And not only that, there's a great opportunity, a market opportunity for me and my organization to play a leading role in redefining how it is that we conduct court work. And so I'm going to become an expert, for example, in online pleading. That's what I would be saying to some of my clients today. You want to master online pleading. So when more and more, and this is already done in international arbitration, when more and more of the work, the persuasion of the judge or the arbitrator is done electronically, you will have preeminent lawyers as expert and acknowledge as such as the great advocates, the oral advocates, you have those who are wonderful at online pleading. And so it's interesting, you can look at this either as a major threat, and it might sound like a cliche, or a great opportunity. And, and Richard, this goes into um, a prediction that you have on the future of uh, lawyers and, and the legal system. I'll read you one more quote. This is from an interview you gave to the uh, Law Society of, of, of England and Wales Gazette. And it's the following. It's, quote, if you are fixed on how we are working, then don't go into law. Start preparing now. We as a profession have about five years to reinvent ourselves, to move from being world-class legal advisors to world-class legal technologists. Does that dovetail with what you just said? I mean, do you view the core competency in the next several decades of legal practitioners, lawyers, whatever you want to call them, uh, an emphasis on technological solutions to client problems? Precisely. Uh, bang on. I said that in 2016. I, and as with all of my stuff, I usually get it a, a couple of years wrong. But the, the, the trajectory, I think, is correct. I think we cannot survive as professionals generally and as lawyers in particular by one, being one-to-one, face-to-face consultative advisors who charge by the hour. I think increasingly, and maybe tax is a good illustration here, you'll increasingly find that more of the service to the client is underpinned by technology. And that's why one of the big four global heads of tax said not long ago that he wanted 20% of his tax specialists to be technologists, not tax experts, 20% of them to be technologists. Well, why would you want that? Because if technology underpins is at the heart of the tax service, then it's no longer, it seems to the, that individual, and I think now to common sense, it's no longer sensible to say, we'll outsource the tax technology to the tax technology industry. You become the tax technology industry. And I think it's the same in the legal world. There's a running theme just now about collaborating and outsourcing the technology. But if, if legal service of legal technology is actually at the heart of the service, it seems to me if you want to be a legal, a leading legal provider, you need to embrace and have technology within your organization rather than thinking that's something that someone else does. Very many lawyers say to me, of course, we're not technologists, we're lawyers. And I question that in my book, Tomorrow's Lawyers. I have this list of skills, legal knowledge, engineering, legal risk management, legal process analysis, legal project management, uh, legal design specialists, and so forth. And I often put a list up, it's about 10 
specialties. And I say to the lawyers assembled in the room, I say, who are these people? Uh, and uh, people look rather surprised I'm asking the question. And I say, these are the people who will be developing the systems who will replace our traditional ways of working. These are the people who will be satisfying the legal needs of clients in the future. These are tomorrow's lawyers. And that's a big jump to make. And people say, well, hang on a second. These aren't lawyers because that's not what we've always done in lawyers. As, and that's not what we learned in law school. And I should say, we shouldn't define what we do as lawyers by what we learned at law school or by what we've been doing over the last 20 or 30 years. Surely lawyers are people who solve clients' legal problems. If the cheapest, most convenient, most business-like best way to solve clients' problems is through systems rather than traditional lawyering, then it seems to me tomorrow's lawyers are the people who develop these systems. So Richard, I say this a bit tongue in cheek, but does that mean that tomorrow's lawyers are the big four? Do you think that uh, you know the, the slowness to adapt by you know large law firms globally has really opened the door to the big four coming in and representing that legal technology arm that uh, you know law firms have been kind of slow to move towards? I think the big four would come into the legal market even if the law firms had been more advanced. What's fascinating, I think, about the big four is we now have credit, credible alternative legal service providers, organizations that have brand permission at board level to delve into other professional services. They're well-resourced, they're familiar with technology, they themselves have been reworking their business models. So there's no doubt they're formidable competition. And I think it's good for the market because it gives the market greater choice. Again, I don't think though the big four will have impact overnight. I think if you said to me, will the league tables for major law firms change by 2022 because of the big four, I would say not. By 2025, 2026, perhaps. So there are certainly major forces to be reckoned with, as I say, formidable, technologically sophisticated. But above all else, that they are bringing, it seems to me, change within the legal marketplace because they will offer a credible alternative and largely technology-based to traditional service, which I think will catalyze, which will encourage major law firms themselves to invest in their technology. As I said earlier, it's not been at all obvious that major leading law firms that are already so very profitable have been sufficiently incentivized to change. I think the big four and technology more generally will provide very significant incentive do you think that one of those key incentives and one of the key realignments that we're going to see with the rise of the big four delivering a larger and larger percentage of, of you know, legal, legal services um, is the death of the billable hour or, or the you know, kind of long heralded decline of the billable hour? Is that, is that part of it? I mean, when I talked to Professor Wilkins, who I know is a, a friend of yours, uh, he talked about how you know, one of the things that the big four does better than nearly any other institution on the planet is operationalize, right? They are extremely good at taking problems globally, streamlining them, and being able to provide predictable pricing. Certainly, I think clients would agree that this is not the forte of law firms. Do you view that as, as key in the, in the kind of future of this realignment? Or is that just one of many things that... Um, that we're going to see unfold? 
I think it'll follow naturally as more and more service is in the broadest of terms, and I've written about this at length, uh, commoditized, the idea of charging by the hour makes less sense. If you are systematizing and productizing legal knowledge, it will be a different kind of business model altogether. Early billing works well, or is at least makes sense when it's based on a service underpinned by human labor. But I thought for some time now that asking the question about alternative billing is actually to some extent to miss the point. We need, if clients who say to me, and many of them do, they need to reduce their legal spend by say 50% within the next three to five years, that won't be achieved by slightly different billing methods. Uh, a little bit of a move to fixed fee, for example, it requires not new ways of billing, but new ways of working, new ways of sourcing legal service. And so, for example, many clients say to me, they're happy to pay high hourly rates for deeply expert individuals when their expertise is genuinely needed, but they're more skeptical about paying junior lawyers working in expensive buildings in expensive cities high hourly rates for work that's routine, repetitive, administrative, and process-based. And so there's a great drive for that more routine and repetitive work, not to be billed at, say, 10% less than junior lawyers are currently being billed, but to be delivered either using new labor models, outsourcing, offshoring, subcontracting, paralegals, or in due course by technology. So for me, the discussion about alternative billing is generally rooted in the mistaken assumption that the industry is going to continue to be dominated by human lawyers delivering the service in a traditional advisory model. The minute you move to alternative ways of working, new labor models, use of technology, it seems to me it won't be a question of resolving the billing question, it will actually just dissolve because it simply won't make sense to embrace that method of charging, which best suits traditional lawyering. Richard, I have one last uh, question for you. This, this uh, discussion has been extremely illuminating and very fascinating. I've got one, one last question, and that, is, that calls for a prediction. And the question is, uh, you know, in, in let's call it 20 years, what do you think will be a, a core function of a lawyer, legal practitioner, whatever you want to call them, uh, that currently does not exist or currently isn't even on our radar? What is the kind of work that we're going to um, need uh, or require in 20 years that we aren't even really thinking about now? Well, there's so many different issues there. I'm not sure if you're asking on the one hand what new legal problems will arise and oh boy, there's going to be a huge number arising from these emerging technologies, legal questions we haven't yet thought about. You're seeing a glimpse of that when people talk about, for example, the liability implications of autonomous vehicles. Right. You're seeing a glimpse of that when we talk about how it is we regulate big tech. So the, the, there's a whole set of questions about what problems will require legal attention in the future. And as our machines become increasingly capable, even in the area of virtual reality, what kind of behavior might be prohibited even within uh, virtual reality? We've not begun to think of these issues. I think you might be asking a slightly different question is, uh, what is it that lawyers might be doing in the future? And as I said earlier, I think that's, if you'll forgive me the wrong question, uh, we should be asking how in the future 
uh, will problems to which lawyers are currently the best solution, how will they be resolved? So I don't like the starting point, what will lawyers be doing? I like the starting point, what problems will need to be solved? And it seems to me in an increasingly technology-based society, what we will have, and I'll just give one illustration, is we'll have technology that, legal technology that is embedded in our wider business practices. So if you're taking major organizations, if you look at major banks or financial institutions or retail outlets, increasingly they're using workflow, they're using all manner of technology to systematize and render as efficient as possible all their operations. And what we have just now is a rather old fashioned technique, I suppose, where the legal element in the workflow is still provided by human beings, human beings in the loop. In the future, what we will do is develop legal plugins. So we'll embed compliance within the operational systems of major organizations. You can see very clear examples of this already. One of my favorite examples is um, when you play the card game on your mobile phone, uh, we call it solitaire. We used to call it, when we played it with playing cards, patience. Uh, now it was interesting when you played patience with playing cards, what would happen if you tried to put a red five under a red six? It's called cheating, but what would happen? Well, uh, what would happen is you could do it. Right. Uh, there, 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 that was an option. It was physically possible. If you try to put a red five under a red six with the game you play in your handheld, that move is rejected because the rules are embedded in the system. And what we'll see in a far larger scale is rules embedded in our systems. We'll see that already. Self-driving cars won't be able to exceed the speed limit. The rules will be embedded in the system. It's, I think, as Larry Lessig once said, the difference between a door where there's a sign saying no entry and a door with a lock. Just now it's no entry and we have the option to comply or not. Uh, in the future, the door will be locked, metaphorically speaking, because our compliance will actually be embedded within our everyday process. So the question is, who will develop these very sophisticated plugins that will ensure our buildings, our cars, maybe even our bodies comply? That'll be a job for tomorrow's lawyers. Richard, you've given us a huge amount to chew on here. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Um, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, it's, it's been an honor to, to host you here on the Modern Lawyer podcast. A big thank you on behalf of me, on behalf of Case Text. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag modernlawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.